Hello, all you audio listeners. This is Amy Clarkson joining you for week five, reading from my book, Simple, How Kids Help Us Understand God. This chapter is one of my favorite. It's on hope and disappointment. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get started. Chapter five, hope and disappointment. Hope is one of those words we use all the time. I hope you have a great day is something I just said this morning as I dropped my kids off at school. Think of all the things we say we hope for. I hope it snows. I hope you're not late again. I hope you feel better soon, etc. The response, I hope so, is a well-worn track that is spewed out to both the most trivial and the most complex statements. The hope that my son doesn't come home with another hole in the knee of his pants is altogether different than hoping my friend's lump she found isn't cancer. The words are the same, but the desire behind those situations is much different. Now think of the word wish. Do you think of wish and hope as the same thing? To help you work through the differences, think of something you wish for and something you hope for. How likely to come to pass are each of those things? There should be a difference, as there is an expectation in the outcome with a hope that wishing just doesn't have. I may wish that I would win the lottery, but I don't expect to, which makes it more of a wish than hope. We use the words so interchangeably, however, that it adds to the confusion of the theological concept of hope. Merriam-Webster distinguishes a wish from hope by stating that wishing is to have a desire for something unattainable, which contrasts with the definition of hope, which is to expect with confidence. See the difference? One is a dream and one is an expectation. In the realm of parenting, hope is the promise of potential change. We discussed in the last chapter about free will that the thing that keeps me sane is holding both the probable and potential in mind with my kids as they make choices in their day. Hope is the half of me that expects the right behavior, and it is grace that accepts the wrong behavior. Hope, we might say, comes before the outcome, and grace is a response to the outcome. As humans, many would say that hope is necessary. We spend so much energy creating protecting, and looking for hope, that we forget it is a crucial aspect of God's nature as well. To fully grasp how God embraces hope for us, let us examine our children. Off the cuff, what are some specific hopes you have for either your children or other children in your life? Recall that hope is confidently expecting something. For me, I hope that my kids have a vibrant relationship with Christ. 
I hope that they find peace and joy in their lives. I hope they reach their potential of who God created them to be. I hope they will not only be redeemed, but restored from whatever harms they may encounter. I admit at times my hopes for them waver into secular values such as hope for love, financial stability, respect, and happiness. I am aware that those can be fleeting and ultimately unfulfilling without a relationship with Christ first and foremost. Notice in both lists that I didn't mention anything about hoping they are the most attractive, most athletic, most intelligent, or most successful person. Behind those hopes is the desire for them to have value based on external measures, which in turn would bring value to me as their parent. What's wrong with those types of hopes, you ask? Well, it risks us using our children as objects to put our hope in them trying to give our lives meaning and purpose. Perhaps you have seen examples of this, where a parent has placed their hope in the success of their child in sports or academics or popularity or a career. Hope in our children is not the same as hope for our children. Hope in and of itself is extremely persistent. When I think about the hopes I have for my children, I know I will never give up on those promises. In fact, as a thought experiment, I have pushed myself to see if there is a limit to this hope I have for them. Would I give up on them finding peace and restoration even if they committed a heinous crime? No. If they disowned me as their mother and walked out of my life for good, vowing to never speak to me again, would I abandon my hope for reconciliation? No. Why is that? Because I love them unconditionally, and they are mine. Here's the thing. God loves us unconditionally, and we are his. God maintains hope for our salvation and reconciliation no matter what we've done or how far away we've gone. This, of course, is what we have been leading up to. If I don't ever give up on my children, God absolutely will never give up on us. Chapter 15 in the book of Luke records three stories Christ tells about lost things. There is a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. In each story, the seeker perseveres until he finds the sheep and coin and the son comes home. What is it that keeps the seeker seeking? Hope. It is hope that accompanies the one who is searching and makes perseverance possible. Christ tells the parables to illustrate not just his grace and mercy, but his determination. Behind his unending pursuit is his eternal hope, which allows him to never give up on us. Think in your own life how important hope is to perseverance. As a parent, it was the hope 
that my children would someday sleep through the night that helped me plod through some sleep-deprived periods of parenting. It is the hope that my children will one day broaden their palates that keeps me fixing and trying new foods. It is the hope that they will one day learn to be kind to each other that helps me not pull out my hair in daily bouts of parenting failures. It's time to add in some reality. Up to this point, we've been in pre-mode, talking about things in the future that we expect or are confident will occur. As human beings that have lived for at least a few years or decades, we know that it's not unusual for something we hope for to not work out. Despite the confidence we may have had, things don't always go how we planned. So, what happens when circumstances or people do not meet our expectations? When our hopes don't come to fruition? Or worse, when we have epic failures or devastating loss? Depending on what the expectations were, we may be crushed and traumatized, but undoubtedly, at the least, we will experience disappointment. Disappointment is what is at the heart of unfulfilled hopes and is a very potent emotion. In fact, even the mere threat of disappointment will often influence our actions. How often have you heard people say that the reason behind their behavior is to avoid disappointing someone? A lot of the choices I made in my teen years to not break my parents' rules was less about agreeing with their parameters and more about trying not to disappoint them. It's more than just childhood behavior that is affected by fear of letting others down. Our aversion to disappointing others is responsible for many current commitments and time-consuming activities, emotions, and thoughts. The reason for this is that we tie disappointment to disapproval. I know that some of my decisions to be involved in specific projects or take on different roles is due to the fear of disappointing and ultimately losing the approval of someone. Can you pinpoint things you've done or not done based on trying to prevent disappointment and disapproval? This creates a problem spiritually. We deal with disappointment so often in our families and with our relationships that we try to carry this same threat over to our relationship with God. In other words, because I experience the feeling of disappointment when I catch my son playing a violent video game after we talked about the potential harm, I assume God must be disappointed in me when I fill my brain with movie filth when I know the possible damage. Or, because I feel intense disappointment in myself when I do something I promised myself I wouldn't do. I naturally expect God must be feeling that same disappointment in me. Have you ever felt that God was disappointed in you? That because as humans, our response to failure is often disappointment, that God's response to our failures must be the same? What if I told you 
that it's not the same. Did you know that never once in the Bible does God use the word disappointment concerning his people? He never states that he is disappointed in us. In fact, I would argue it is impossible for him to be disappointed in us. That's right, impossible. To conceptualize this, we have to bring hope back into the picture. If we were to write out an equation for this, it would look like this. Hope or expectation plus unmet expectation equals disappointment. Remember, hope is having confidence and expecting something to occur. And when it doesn't, we are hurt and sad. Now, I'm going to add the other human element to this equation that explains its truth. So hope or expectation plus unmet expectation, a surprise, equals disappointment. You see, disappointment holds hands with surprise because in life, the future is unknown. It is the unexpected, unfulfilled expectation that hurts. When one of my children says something disrespectful, it is the surprise coupled with the letdown that causes the disappointment. When I hope I will get the job after a stellar interview, my disappointment at being passed over is related to the outcome being unanticipated. Obviously, if I had known at the outset I wouldn't get the job, I wouldn't have had hope or expectations for the job and thus wouldn't have been disappointed. So, disappointment occurs when our hopes are dashed by something unforeseen. Unlike humans, though, nothing is a surprise to God. Herein lies the grand difference between God and man. Because everything is already known, God can't have expectations that aren't met. And therefore, he cannot be disappointed. One of my friends told me about a moment her son disappointed her years ago. She had hoped he would get through high school without any underage drinking. She was confident in his sound choices until she was surprised one morning to find him hungover from a party. She retold how discouraged she was and displeased with him because she knew his potential. I asked her, looking back now at that day and knowing what you know about him today, would you still be disappointed? She didn't even hesitate. Well, no because now I know it didn't make a difference. Even if it had, if there had been some consequence, I know now the kind of person he is, and I wouldn't have reacted the same. I clarified further. So, if all those years ago, if I could have told you before the event that, one, your son was going to slip up one night and drink, and two, that he was going to grow in character from that poor choice he made, would you have experienced disappointment? She smiled. No, I suppose not. If I knew the future, then it wouldn't have bothered me. And maybe 
I would have been glad it happened as it did. Let's say we watch a movie for the first time and find ourselves disappointed in the decisions the character makes along the way. But then we reach the end and it all works out. And more importantly, the characters grow and learn from their choices and are better people for them. My guess is if we watch the movie a second time, knowing the outcome and without surprises, we wouldn't feel disappointed in those same decisions. God can live in all time and already knows every microsecond how we will respond, both good and bad, and how he can use those moments to refine us that allows for the inability to be disappointed. He is never surprised. He's already seen the movie and knows how it ends. Romans 8:28 in the NIV says, And we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Not only is he not disappointed because he's not surprised, but he's also actually working with each decision and experience in our lives for something good. It's important to note that the Greek word used here for good is agathos, which means good as in essential goodness or good in nature, kind, generous. Think opposite of evil. In other words, God is trying for a good character, internal, and not good circumstances, external. This constant working for good is how we can view our lives with such profound hope. His confidence in us and in our ability to be redeemed is why he never stops pursuing and giving opportunities for healing and growth. I don't know about you, but that reassurance is something I need often. As a parent who experiences both hope and disappointment with my kids, Conceptualizing how God encompasses only the hope side has helped me to not overreact to life's failures. It's a process, but I have to remind myself that I don't know the ending. Trying to wrap my brain around the idea that God already knows the ways I'm going to mess up and fail and is not disappointed, but instead is already working to use those defeats to refine me, fills me with hope. If God is doing this with me, he is also doing it with my children. If I can just hold on to that reality, perhaps I can parent with more hope and less disappointment, more grace and less condemnation. Well, that's it on the chapter on hope and disappointment. Next week, chapter six, is a hard one, but it's going to be good. It's on judgment. Hope you find yourself here next week. Otherwise, have a great week.